On today's show, I'm going to be talking with Ethan Minsker, and I know him as The Man in Camo, which is the name of his current documentary that's been playing the film festival circuit. He's also a promoter of film festivals with a very interesting series that is now on Amazon Prime. We're going to talk about his little growing empire on Amazon and also you know what I personally want to know is what is the current state of punk rock and how can we keep that aesthetic in live alive whether it's music film just this do-it-yourself attitude that I think we need more of nowadays so welcome to the show Ethan thank you thank you hello that was a mouth- there, viewing audience <laughs> listening audience well, that was such a mouthful. It's hard to introduce you because you're a Renaissance man and you're both a filmmaker, a writer, you know, a zine maker. I didn't even touch upon the zine in the intro, which is such a big part of you. And I see that as kind of the punk rock side of you. And we're definitely going to talk about that today. But in a nutshell, what's your elevator speech on who you are and what you do creatively? Elevator speech. I would say quickly that I guess I follow my passion at the moment. So I create in whatever realm that I am interested in. So if it's fanzines or scripts or films or visual art or performance art, I try to imagine that, you know, we have one time on this planet. So if I'm interested, and I'm compelled, I will pursue. And I think I like, that's like, you know, I don't think, I don't like the, like the concept of being pigeonholed into one thing, you know, so. Well, I like how in the internet age, the digital age, you still make a print zine. And you, I mean, to this day, you still make new issues of it. Yeah, I mean, I like, you know, I think it's, um, People will find you through the internet or your social media, but at this point, it's like even in those sort of outlets, unless you have a lot of money or you're very extremely attractive, then nobody really connects with you. So the fanzine is a physical form that I can leave in random places and reach out and touch people that would never be introduced to my circle. I mean, I kind of say it like this. It's like you have an immediate circle. That's your friends and your family. And then you have a secondary circle, which is the friends of friends. And then there's like this third or fourth circle where it's like people who have no direct connection to you. How do you reach that? That's kind of like the hardest circle for any creative to reach. So, you know, whether it's putting a film on Amazon Prime or iTunes or videos, The fanzine is like a great calling card where I can leave that in very random places. And I mean, like, I would go to art museums and slip them, you know, in in the brochure exhibits or at the Whitney. I go down the exit stairwell and I place them randomly so people can just pick them up. Um, And on trains and coffee shops, I mean, wherever I go, I might leave them. And then I have like set locations that I leave stacks of, like in galleries and shops in the Lower East Side. 
Well, I'm going to give people a quick rundown on your films that are on Amazon Prime now, just to whet their appetite until we can get more in depth. And then we're going to switch over and I'm going to do a dangerous thing and talk about your background in New York, how you started doing, you know, your own events, doing the zine, you know, being immersed in the punk scene which I love to hear those stories. It's it's always a dangerous thing because uh, people think, well, do I have to start at my childhood and give you every single detail leading up? And if you want to, hey, go ahead. But I think for me being, you know, from the West Coast, I still see this glamour and this whole mythology about an East Coast art scene and especially in New York. So, you know, I'm going to want some juicy details of that. But first, let me blow your horn and tell about the movies that you have on Amazon.com, which I've seen quite a handful myself. I love that. It's part of the Prime subscription. But this is Berlin, not New York, from 2008. A more recent, The Great Record Hunt from the past couple of years, which I love. A pilot episode of what I hope will be a longer-term series of you going on the road to visit record stores around the country and see the people that are keeping vinyl alive. You're just released a filmmaker's guide to film festivals, which is kind of another travelogue where you visit film festivals, interview the people involved and add some very quirky animation, which I love kind of like a glowing Batman <laughs> glowing colors. Anything boys can do a documentary you made over 20 years ago that features the voluptuous horror of Karen Black and some other great bands of that, I'd say, early 90s era from New York. The Women of Punk Rock, which I really, really liked. I'm so glad you got interviews with those people. Uh, the Dolls of Lisbon from 2012. Oh, my God. I haven't even seen this one before. Self-Medicated, a film about art from 2015. The Soft Hustle from 2003, Man in Camo, which I mentioned. I'm sure there's more. Uh, did I pretty much list everything you currently have on Amazon? Yeah, that's everything in the film forms on Amazon. And, you know, I mean, we're going to talk about the punk rock stuff. But if you go over to the books, I have two books on Amazon Prime. The Rich Boy Cries for Mama, which is about the DC punk scene. And Barstool Profits, which is about the New York City bar scene. So it's almost like, you know, this uh, memoir where I break it up into chapters based on location. So Rich Boy is about DC and Barstool is the New York section. And there's a third book that I have not found someone willing to take it on and publish, which is all the crazy art stuff in New York. So did you move from DC to New York? Yeah, in uh, 1988, I moved from Washington, D.C. to New York City to go to art school. And first I was fine arts, and then I switched to film. Okay. High school visual arts. Because I can still remember the 80s, because I'm probably close to your age, a little bit older, but not too much. But, you know, I remember those pre-internet days, those pre-digital days of living in a college town, you know, wanting to make a mark artistically, going to the funky, you know, bookstores and magazine stores that had zines and film magazines and just indie culture. And I don't think people realize in the pre-internet day how you just hungered for that. 
And if you didn't live in a college town or a cool place, it was really hard to access this. And I think the people who, you know, made just face-to-face -face connections, went to clubs, went to see bands play live, and like you did, you know, created a zine, we were always looking for someone like you to be the kingpin and, and kind of give voice to all this stuff and, and have a cohesive place we could go to, whether it was a magazine, a zine, or whatever. So I just want to know, you know, when you hit New York and you were making your mark, how did you use your zine, you know, to make connections? And, you know, were you trying to create something that you just couldn't find yourself? Yeah, I mean, like, when I first started doing it, um, you know, it was in 1988 was the first copy of the zine and it was called East Coast Exchange. And that was kind of like this thing I was going between DC and New York in that time. And um, I wanted to cover the music scene. And I realized that, you know, first it's like, you have to do the music reviews, the scene report, all of this stuff. And then that kind of interjects you into this world of bands. And then it's like you got to have photographers that photograph the bands and doing the interview. So it kind of sucks you into this thing of like, not just the music, but the art connected to that scene, um, you know, illustrators and visual artists. So it's like the zine over time turned into a fanzine that centered on arts and like underground arts, but was firmly rooted in punk rock because that was a lot of like where the fancy culture I interacted with was within the punk rock world, like going to the record shop and picking up a zine that, you know, it's like the fanzines are micro local media, meaning that, you know, like if you were reading like something like maximum rock and roll, yes, they had a section called scene report that would cover, you know, some shows in your local you know, in your town, but each fanzine was so local, it'd be like mentioning people that you knew by name, bands that you went to go see in the clubs that you were in. So my fanzine really covered a few clubs in DC and like a lot of CBGBs and tramps and stuff like that in, in New York. So the other part of that story is that I'm dyslexic. Being learning disabled means, you know, you're kind of shut out from the rest of the world you know, within literature and all of that. But in fanzines, there is no, you know, no one cares about spelling. No one cares about improper grammar. And the fanzines really kind of opened up this creative world to me that everything was okay in the, you know, in the outlet of a fanzine. So that's kind of where I started. And that really built a community around the magazine of artists and musicians and later filmmakers and visual artists. Because when you go to a city like New York, you might have this illusion that, you know, papers say like the village voice, you think, oh yeah, that's more accessible than the New York Times, you know, I'll send a press release there. But even a publication like that was hard to get into, you know, there's just a hierarchy and you suddenly realize, oh, you know, all my promotion is just ending up in the waste paper basket. You know, how do I get into print? Yeah, that was also a big part of it is that even back then, it was like extremely hard to find people that cared enough 
about the subjects that you were interested in. And fanzines really were a slice of every little bit of genre that you could possibly be interested in. And I mean, and actually I'm, I'm currently working on a documentary that won't be out for a few years called Film Threat Sucks, which is about this magazine called Film Threat that really only covered underground films. So for me, like as a young filmmaker, they were pretty much the only people that would cover the kind of films that I made and covered the people and the films that I was interested in. But my fanzine did the same thing. It's like I wanted to highlight artists and musicians and writers that I was fascinated with, and I figured somebody else would be too. Well, back in those days, you know, we would have just, you know, dreamt of having blogs or, you know, this quick, you know, online way to communicate. But back in the day, we just couldn't even imagine something like this. But what I'm really curious about is just the mechanics of how you printed your zine back in the day. I mean, did you just bring a bunch of cut and paste originals down to Kinko's and just start, you know, going to town? Well, first I would... um you know, I'd write up the thing on a, I forget what the computer was, but it was like a very old, rudimentary, rud, very old style computer, you know, like one of the very first ones, or it hand typed out. And then you'd print it out, you would cut it with scissors and use um, rubber cement to lay it out on the paper. And then I actually found this um, printing press out in San Francisco called Punks with Press that were connected to friends of mine who were in the Bay Area um, that played in a band, the Swinging Utters. They're the guys that found it for me. And they were very affordable. And I'd print out about a thousand copies per issue, an actual print, um, you know, from a printing press. And then I would sell them for a buck a copy. And, you know, it would take me, at that point, it was like, I would sell them over the course of a year and then I would do a new one. So I put out one a year um, with a lot of love and care. And then I would sell it in like the record shops and CBGB's had a record shop and see here in um, New York city on seventh street and even tower records sold some. So it's like I would hand sell them, but I also sold them in a lot of like venues and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And then it slowly transitioned into like a copy machine one where basically any job that I had access to and they weren't supervising <laughs> the copy machine, I oh would be in there copying as many as I could. And then I also wrote in the zine like, hey, if anybody's interested in being an office bandit, we need copies. Please copy this and I'll come pick them up. Because, you know, you could take the same issue, take the staple out, put it on a copy machine and make multiples. So I had people at like architecture firms and wherever there was a disgruntled employee that was a fan of the zine, you know, I would get copies from. And then, of course, everyone makes friends with somebody at Kinko's. So I remember we had someone at Kinko's that a group of these other zine makers that I had befriended and they would take my master layout and they would print about a thousand in one go, have them all boxed, stapled and then delivered to my house. So I wasn't even on the premises and I would just get boxes and boxes of free zines. And that was like the best because later when I was doing the copy machines, you know, you'd have to hand staple them 
And boy, like when you're stapling thousands and thousands of zines, it can get pretty monotonous. And I have gone through so many of the saddle stitch staplers, like so. Oh my yeah, god! Really, it's well, well, like well, you assess what you have access to, and you use as use and exploit it. I mean, I just remember even in like late '80s, early '90s, what a novelty it was to go to Kinkos and have access to a scanner. Like that was a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I think from the zine and this kind of transition later into this art movement that I was part of, the antagonist art movement, is in the zine you kind of have this mantra where it's like, beg, borrow, cheat, or steal. And that sort of transitioned learning, you know, using that to create the zine, moved into making the films, moved into making visual arts, you know, wheat pasting, you know, street art in New York, like, so, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't think I answered that question correctly. No, you did. And I think I think you're just illustrating that you have to be kind of daring to do what you did and what you do. And I think a lot of people don't do this stuff because they just don't have the guts to kind of be, you know, they you have to forge your own path. If you make a zine, there's like no one single way to do it. Part of it, you just find a way to do it as you start to do it. Yeah, and I'd say, for, like, you know, for somebody who's starting out, they should really look at one-page, one-sheet zines. You can find lots of videos on YouTube how to do it. And you basically fold, like, this origami sheet into one paper, one sheet, with a you cut a slit in the middle of it, and it gives you eight pages. And it's like a mini-zine. And that way... It keeps the copying very cheap because you're only having to print one, and it gives you eight pages of the small zine. It's small, so you can carry tons of them and hide them everywhere. I mean, I think there's sort of this thing when you're creating is that we become so accustomed to what the world tells us what we can do. You know, like, you are an individual. You need to get a job, and you need to, you know do all these sort of things that society deems necessary. And that's true. But at the same time, you can do all of these creative outlets that the only limitation is yourself. So I try to create not just a world where I can function, you know, economically, where, you know, you have a job that pays the bills and that affords you the ability to live in some place like New York. But then at the same time, not allowing these sort of rules that dictate and, and restrict you to a box. So, like, if I want to go do street art, I'm going to go do it. You know, like all of those sort of outlets, you can research. There's how-to videos on everything. And then just try it. You know, in, in these attempts, whether you succeed or not, you're having the experience of doing it and you'll get better at it and you're really opening your world into this you know it's almost like charlie and the chocolate factory like there's a world of imagination behind these doors and your mind is the door you just have to open it up and try a bunch of different things well when you mention you know having office jobs where you you know get access to their great xerox machines you totally made me flash back to the early 90s probably one of my last corporate jobs and my little um i guess a technique or a little angle i had going 
was I uh, wrote the company newsletter for our office. It was just, you know, within our department, pretty low key, like a four page. You just fold, you know, the 11 by 17 and a half. But it gave me a valid reason to be up at the copy machine every day. So if I was slipping in some of my personal projects, no one was the wiser because they expected me to be there anyway. Isn't that it's brilliant? Like, you, well, you should have done it, A. Me, like, <laughs> you know, it's like the other part of this thing is I find whatever you're doing creatively, whether it's a film festival or it's a film or a zine, it's like you will learn that you can build this community that will support what you do and that allows you to do more within that within that community. So, like, if you had been doing that zine and slipping it around Gorst or wherever, all over Washington State, you know, you, like, you're very good at, at having a community, but you'd be reaching people that are, you know, again, like I already said this, but outside of your community. And you know what, Kelly, it's not too late. You can start. You can start doing a zine tomorrow. I do. I have a fantasy of doing a zine. And, you know, one thing is, like, say you do an event and you make a program, that kind of gets you just a tiny bit of your feet wet. You think, oh, yeah, this program's cool. You know, let me add a little interview or an article. And it's just enough to make you dream of doing your own zine. But I think the thing is, you know, it takes commitment. And, like, for you to say, you know, even to put out one every year, and to market it for that whole year, that's a big commitment. Yeah, I mean, we started, we ended up doing it twice a year. So we were bi yearly when we converted into Psychomotozine. And luckily, I had built up a really great team of two women who edit. They edit all my books and all the zines. And this guy, Stephen Lashley, who was the, the last guy that we had doing layout. So once you build this team, then it's kind of like everybody, you know, knows what their job is. And we have a system and using Google Docs and all of these things. So everybody can work remotely. I mean, actually, one of the editors for my zine lives in Seattle, Washington, and been working on the book. So, you know, she's been doing that for more than 10 years there. But it's like um, you really just once you start doing it, you're going to build all this really amazing connections and all these other opportunities then slowly open up like the, the fanzine I do, I, I do promote my films and my books and I feel like there's, you know, I do use it every bit of everything to try to leverage the best I can for not just myself, but the entire creative team that we built. You know, if you go to eBay, People do collect zines, which is really cool. And I don't think it's necessarily, you know, people want to speculate and make money. But I think it's just now this validation to show that stuff that people thought, you know, that nobody cared about. Or, you know, a year after you make it, you know, you do 100 copies and then they're just gone. And I think some zine makers don't even have original copies of their zines. And I think sometimes they just throw in the towel and think, you know, nobody cares. It's kind of nice to see, you know, 20 years later that a lot of people still do care and find these old zines of value. Well, Mark Jacobs was selling, uh, I think it was Slash Zine at three to $400 a copy. 
when that zine was like 50 cents when it first came out, this old black and white Xerox thing. So yeah, I mean like some zines are extremely valuable at this point because they're so rare and you can find them all over like uh, eBay and Etsy and things like that. If you're in New York city, there's a shop called printed matter. And I think people, if you look it up, it's like printedmatter.org. And I always take zine makers over there as like kind of this tour. And when you walk in there, you see that there's, it's not just like art books, but actual like modern day art zines. And the prices range from, you know, a couple of bucks all the way up to three to $400 if it's a limited edition by an artist that's, you know, well known. So there is this credibility now within the contemporary art world that, zines are now just a bigger bigger part is like any any sort of art market that there is like whether it's a gallery or you know it's just another way to to be able to express yourself and i'm, I'm a big advocate for zines for sure well when i was watching one of your films last night <laughs> and i think it's anything boys can do because there is a scene in it where they mentioned zines and someone was looking at fact sheet five, which is kind of a, a zine unto itself, but it was a zine that I think reviewed and sort of cataloged other zines. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Fact sheet five was a zine that reviewed zines. And I used to always be sending my zine there. It's like you had fact sheet five and maximum rock and roll. Every issue that you had come out, you would send off to review to those places and fact sheet five was a good way that I would get, you know, I'd write in there like free if you're in prison. And so I'd get lots of like mail from prison asking for the zine and would send them out. Um, I thought you were going to say marriage proposals. No, I did have like, you know, over the years of doing the zine for since 1988, you know, over 30 years, I would have people either being like, Oh yeah, you know, like a really attractive girl, like oh, I really love your zine, and he being freaked out and running away, or some guy with tattoos all over his face, wanting to kill me because I wrote a bad review of their band. Oh no! Serial killers writing you letters. I mean, all of these kind of things I talk about in Barstool Profits because that book covers a lot of like kind of the New York City and fanzine culture, because at that point when I was firmly embedded in like the East village, I was very much into East coast exchange and psychomotorzine. And that was my, a big part of my introduction to the neighborhood and how I met a lot of people within the arts community originally of downtown Manhattan was through doing the zine and, you know, mixing it up with the people. So did you pick the East village? Because oh, yeah, let me, oh. let me finish one last thing. Oh, oh fact sheet five. Yes anything boys can do the woman melanie who wrote who did the zines that i covered in anything boys can do um she actually passed away a few years ago so i was friends with her like right up till a few years ago a few years ago and i think she um you know just i think it was like a heroin overdose or something really sad but so when i watched that footage i'm like oh man and she was doing great little like mini zines in that section Sorry, well, when I saw that scene, it really brought me back because we were lucky in Seattle. We had a store called Bulldog News, which is in the University District by the University of Washington. And that was kind of zine central. 
and I just remember, you know, first becoming aware of these. And just when I found Fact Sheet 5, I thought, finally, there's just something to give me a handle on what's going on in this world. At first, you think it's kind of random. Then you see something like this and you realize how deep it went. And there were just way more zines than you could ever imagine. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, again, it's this weird thing, like, most zines were not national, except for Maximum Rock and Roll and, you know, Fact Sheet 5. Everything else was very local, so you'd have to go to a record store and, the you know, like, kind of a punk rock record store, and then there might be, like, a section of zines there. And those zines might only last, they might only be one issue or, like, for a year or two. You know, it's some high school kid or some gothic kid doing a zine for a few years and then they go graduate to college or move away. So it's this kind of weird like ebb and flow of this micromedia that is so centrally located that you had to really search it out. But if you found one, then you might be turned on to bands and records and movies and, you know, a whole world that kind of like was uncovered by like a layer so like in my zine i would always have like graphic novel reviews and like you know sometimes film reviews and band reviews a ton but then also i'd feature different artists and do interviews with artists and feature different writers and try to always make it that this is a way that you can reach directly out to that creator you know you didn't you could sidestep reaching out to me and reach right directly to that creator. And sometimes things would happen because of that. Well, I'm trying to envision New York in the late eighties, you know, it sounds like they had already cleaned up times square and, and, and the great seedy grindhouse theaters. So they're already kind of taken away some of the grit and character. And I, and I was like, think of, you know, Keith Haring or Basquiat and, you know, that crowd, I mean, were they considered East Village? Were, by the time you got there, was it already, you know, changing from what it was in the mid-80s? Well, I'd say, like, Times Square and all that stuff was kind of 90s. So when I got there, it's like, you know, uh, Times Square was still very, very seedy. And, you know, it had the 24-hour movie theaters, the peep shows, strip okay. clubs, a lot of violence. I mean, Times Square in the 80s, late 80s, was still pretty messed up. And downtown East Village was a dangerous place. And matter of fact, it's called Alphabet City. It wasn't even the East Village at that point. And, you know, in the punk rock world, it's like in D.C., growing up in the punk rock world, this was extremely violent. So, you know, I talk about this in Man in Camo and in Rich Boy Cries for Mama, the book. But, you know, I had a lot of friends that succumbed to the violence. Like, you know, we're murdered. And that kind of put me off to the idea of staying in D.C. And when I had the chance, luckily, that my parents could send me to art school, I took it and fled to New York to get away from, you know, everybody I knew that was spiraling into this world of violence. And New York, the punk rock scene and the hardcore scene, yes, it has a lot of violence. And I witnessed a lot of violence here in New York at CBGB's and the Sunday matinees that I would cover. Um, but the thing here is that the violence is that people would beat the crap out of each other. They would yell at each other. They would physically hurt each other, but nobody killed each other. In D.C., people would get into arguments over these little things, and then they would end up shooting and killing the person over it. 
where in New York people would express themselves and beat the crap out of each other, maybe put somebody in the hospital, but generally they weren't killing each other. And in some ways I thought that was refreshing, but over the course you know, of years and years, I, I gravitated away from the punk rock scene and more into the contemporary art world and, you know, following my dreams of making stuff, you know, within the art world and films and all of that. So I feel like I still keep a lot of that punk rock base and ethos, but just try to use it in something creative. Stop. And do something that's creative and like, um, you know, express myself that way and, and stay away from the violence and all of that. But yeah, no, New York in the, in the time period, it was still pretty gritty and whatever. And, you know, as far as like Basquiat and all of those guys, they kind of had this thing like within street art. It's like the, the horsemen of the apocalypse. And that's Keith Haring, Basquiat, and uh, this guy, artist Richard Hamilton. And fortunately, we did a bunch of shows uh, and art projects with Richard Hamilton under our art group, the Antagonist Art Movement. We were the first people to give him a public show in over 20 years in the basement of a bar where we did all of these kind of like art events. So we are connected through Richard and if you're ever on Amazon Prime, you can see Richard in a movie called uh, The Shadow Man, which he did a lot of the street art where he would do these kind of shadowy figures. And yeah, so I feel like I was lucky that I got to come to New York and do all these, curated all these art shows and met a lot of these figures in the downtown art world that, you know, I only, you know, saw as far as films and stuff of that, like growing up in dc so it's like come to new york i'm doing a fanzine i meet arturo vega who is the artistic director for the ramones he becomes a part of our art group you meet the ramones people you have uh richard hell coming to our art shows and you have you know handsome dick manitoba from the dictators being in some of my films or howie pyro from the heart attacks and degeneration so it's like if you watch the soft hustle which again on Amazon, which Prime. I did recently and enjoyed. So in that film, it has like Paul Barra from Sheer Terror. It has Max Huber from The Swinging Utters. It has Sergio Vega from Quicksand and The Deftones. It has Howie Pyro, uh, Handsome Dick Manitoba. It's just like a, a slew of like East Village punk rock celebrity kind of mini cameos in that film, including. Steve Bonji, who is the president of the Hells Angels, and Jesse Mellon, who is the singer for Degeneration. So, you know, it's, I feel like I'm glad I came here in the time that I did. And yeah, over the years, it's like New York City has become kind of like a safe mall. But, you know, with COVID, crime is coming back, graffiti is coming back, feels a little more dangerous out there. People are a little more skeptical of the future. It's sort of gravitating back to when I first moved here. Well, I'm impressed with how you got those people into your movie. So what's your technique for luring these sort of uh, <laughs> underground and cult figures? Let's say it's not like, um, 
you know, it's not like I was doing the best movies and the budget for the soft hustle was $2,000 and it's a feature film. And that money went to basically getting a hotel room in Atlantic city, renting a, a limousine that was like 50 bucks, the drugs that are seen in the film. And that was about it. Everything else in the film, we begged, borrowed, cheat and stole to get like the locations we didn't pay for the actors did it for free i wrote all the scenes over the course of a week and we filmed over four years and just took our time even the editing that i did a friend of mine let me edit at their editing facilities at night you know and even duplicated we sold that on vhs originally it was in the kim's videos it was in the two boots and would hand sell vhs copies that's like a thing that people don't think of but the process is, is like whether you're doing a zine or whatever you're doing, when people see that you actually take the effort and put work into it and complete it, that's a big part, is finishing. Whether it's like the best thing or not, people are like, oh, that's cool. Like, I want to get involved. I want to support. I want to help, you know. And especially in New York where this is a center where creatives have always flocked to. and the rents are so high that you get stuck doing a job to pay for your apartment. And when someone comes along and says like, Hey, I'm making a film. Do you want to act in it? Do you want to do music for it? It's you'd find a sea of people being like, yeah, that's why I came to New York. Like I would love to get involved. But the real truth of it is, is that when, wherever you are, if, if people see that you are actually doing the work and finishing the project, you know, it's, you get a lot of people who start things and don't finish it. So my rule is I always, always finish the project because it's more important that people see you finish it than the quality. You know what I mean? Like, it's this weird thing. Like, people have faith that you're going to finish it. They'll be more willing to invest their talents. Now, what format did you shoot the soft hustle on? That was mini DV. So... It was like cassette, mini DV, mini cassette tapes, mm -hmm. videotapes, uh, analog. Nice. And uh, I had uh, one handheld Sony camera and had night vision. And I just put a microphone on top of it. So the limitations were I basically had to be within an arm's length of anybody on screen to get clear audio. So you'll see a lot of these shots where I'm really close to people. It's because I needed, especially if we were outside, I had to really get close. So I'd always have the headphones on. So I always could tell like, oh, the audio is good or the audio is bad. But the soft hustle is like a narrative as opposed to everything else I did is documentaries on groups of artists and myself. Is that the entire soft hustle is pretty much based on conversations and things that we either witnessed or overheard in the bars when I was a bartender. So somebody would say something and be like, oh, that's amazing. And I'd write it down and I would keep it. And then a week later, we might be shooting that scene and including it into the story that became the, the film. Now, how long did it take you to shoot that? It was four years. So it's kind of like broken up into shorts. And the characters all flow within each of the shorts. So there's the the businessman 
who's like this kind of like scallywag guy who's always trying to get over like a, a soft hustle in New York means like a soft hustle is somebody who comes and steals like tips off a bar. It's like somebody who's doing something very low level criminal and almost pathetic in the hustle. It's a soft hustle. Like the so, guy that keeps going to the phone booths looking for change. Yeah. Yeah. So the businessman is that guy. He's like always trying to get a, make a buck out of nothing. And then you have the character that's the florist. And he's like the guy that's like, wants to be the Don Juan and date all the women. And um, then you have the artist who's like this person who's like, you know, this East Village archetype where it's like, my art is so important. It's more important than, than breathing for anybody else. Like it's so I took archetypes of the neighborhood and I, intermixed these characters together and strung them throughout the story that became the soft hustle. But yeah, we did separate kind of shorts and then did those through festivals. Like they played in the woods hole, um, Woodstock, uh, New York underground, Chicago underground, like a whole bunch of these like underground film festivals basically in the nineties. Um, Cause we started that in a uh, 90, nine 98 and then finished it in 2003 so for people today who have grown up only knowing that they can make a feature film on their iphone you know in the blink of an eye or you know create a youtube empire on their smartphone you know just to tell them you know 20 years ago making a feature film on high eight was just a very audacious thing to attempt a lot of people were not doing that back then. That was a very bold move. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's like, you know, I mean, like whatever, whether it's a short or a feature, it's really about, it's the really the difference is the amount of effort you're willing to devote to the project. So, you know, we designed it from the beginning to be separate shorts. So as long as we can complete each short, we knew we were going to hit a feature in like at least the five, four years it took. Um, but yeah, I mean, but I'd still say like, you know, I make films on iPhones and all that. So it's still complicated. You still have to shoot it and edit it. And if you want it to be good. You have to take the time to put the effects in and sound design. It's just before you had to do it on a physical cassette tape that, you know, really made things more expensive and bulkier. I appreciate the fact that people can make films on their iPhones and I'm doing that myself. Even in the middle of a pandemic, I use the iPhone and document everything that, you know, that I know that I may use. And I, I feel like it's at least now you'd hope with the iPhone that people are getting much better you know, quality footage. And I guess they are because you see all of the activism that's spawned by people just, you know, becoming homegrown documentary filmmakers where they're just covering police brutality or some insane thing, you know, because everybody has access to a camera. Well, one thing to share with people nowadays, younger people, is back in the day, okay, you know, now we've got these zines selling for big bucks on eBay, and everyone's loving old vinyl. But there is this period in between this rediscovery where there's actually kind of a little bit of shame working in low-resolution formats, mostly because the mainstream so looked down upon you.
and you just felt you know you're groveling to get the mainstream to notice your work and thank goodness now we can look back and say no it doesn't matter what format it was shot on you know it's the art and the ideas behind it but back then it, it was kind of um this little mind thing that a filmmaker would go through or like a zine maker where you'd kind of feel a little bit ashamed that you know i'm not shooting on 16 millimeter film oh film festivals won't like me I mean, you know i don't have glossy paper and you know really nice photography for my magazine cover and do you know what i mean on that i mean it's i think you know not everyone felt ashamed but i think it's, uh, it's almost like the mainstream wanted us to feel that shame and wanted to exclude us from their distribution networks. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I get that, but luckily, because I'm from the punk rock world, it's like, that's almost fashionable and always has been, is that, you know, like, whatever you have access to, if you can be crafty enough and make it into something beautiful, it's like, that's kind of the more important thing. I'm, you know, I'm never going to be a Hollywood filmmaker. I'm never going to have that success. I mean, I wish I would. But, you know, for me, it's like, I like those gritty, dirty, low quality films. Like there's a, a documentary, like uh, Javisi Makes a Movie. You can find that on Amazon Prime too. Oh, yeah. Uh, Giovanni Makes a Movie. Yeah. And, no, no, no. Giuseppe Makes a Movie. Yeah. Yeah, I love like, that movie, by the way. I know exactly what you're talking about. But. And when you watch his thing, it's like the same thing. It's like, I got what I got. I'm going to do it the way I do it. And if people like it or they don't, this is what it is. And there's something really beautiful in that sort of raw form. And then John Waters, it's like all of these guys just did that sort of, you know, or Nick Zed or Kenneth Anger or, you know, Richard Kern. It's like all of these guys, you know, in the New York City sort of like anthology film archives world would make these low-budget Super 8 films and made these amazing things. I find kind of the trick with low-budget films is if you have good audio, people will forgive everything else. So, like, for The Soft Hustle, one of the guys that worked on it, um, Brad, who was in this band, The Goops, and he does a, a show for Vans now. I, I wish I could remember the name, but um, his name was Brad Goop at the time. And he was a high-end sound designer and he took the soft hustle and did all of the sound design and really cleaned it up. And so that would have been a value at like a hundred to $200,000 in sound design and for this very low quality film. So the film appears to be much better because he brought up the quality from the audio and the audio is not that great, but he made it much, much better. So I think it's like, you know, I always try to devote more of my funds into the sound mix and the color correction because those two things will make the film's quality look better and then in the addition is like i can also do animation so like whether it's self-medicated or man in camo i really do these handcrafted paper and clay and after effects animation throughout and that always lends a lot to the to what the theoretical budget would be if I had to hire an animator, which is usually extremely expensive. So, you know, there are things you can do that, that can make the quality appear bigger budget than it actually is. And sound design is always a big one for that. That's why I say like, whether you're doing whatever, like have your headphones on and make sure the audio is at the best you can close the windows, 
turn off the air conditioner, do whatever you got to do to make that audio as clean as you can, because that'll make your film watchable. People will tolerate a blank screen if the audio is clean, you know? Or like I have here next to my microphone, I, I unplug my fridge before I do my podcast. Yeah, and I try to kick my kid and wife out of the room while I'm doing this, too. So you <laughs> What's may bad that is, is, when you, is when you forget to plug uh, the fridge back in, and six hours later, everything in your freezer has melted. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> well, on the technical side of things, here's what's really funny about nowadays. Like you have, you know, seen firsthand putting your work on Amazon Prime, which is a great outlet. But now there's the new gatekeepers, the streaming giants, you know, Netflix, Amazon Prime, and they um, get very nitpicky on technical quality, and they might have, you know, indie and underground on there, but. It seems like sometimes just randomly there might be some technical part of a movie that you're uploading. They reject it, and they never tell you why. Yeah, have I mean, you ever run across to, that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be fair, to say to the audience, if you're not an Amazon fan, you can find my films on iTunes and Google Play, and you know, there it's it's Voodoo, uh, Voodoo, and like. Wherever you watch films, you'll at least find a couple of my films. So don't feel that you have to go to Amazon. Right. But yeah, like particularly I've been, you know, so I had like a distributor who distributes a few of my films. But during the pandemic, I decided that I will try to upload and do my own films under my own production company through Amazon. So, you know, old films that were out of date um, that were, you know, like This is Berlin or anything boys can do or the dolls of lisbon those were all films that you know were more than 10 years old and like that were just on dvd so i've been you know meticulously going through and upping the quality and and uploading those but for the great record hunt we also shot a ton of sh shorter episodes in other cities i was traveling while i was on tour with the film man and camo. So when I would play a festival, I would hit a local record store too and shoot like a mini episode. And I strung those together as a part two, um, during the COVID thing. And I uploaded that it's, it's the same quality, you know, that you'd find from my other film, the filmmaker's guide to film festivals, which was, you know, I used an iPhone for the audio and I used a GoPro for the video and did all the After Effects animation. So, you know, that's a very low quality compared to my other feature films that it's like we're using, you know, the high quality um, FS 700s and Canon 5Ds and like, you know, much bigger budget quality cameras. So I already knew that they would take that quality because they already uploaded and accepted one of the features. So I uploaded that, and the most common thing I get rejections for is like, oh, you can't have any website information or anyone talking about website stuff or anything that's basically going to take people away from Amazon. They just do not allow it. So I went through and I wiped all that out, but I think because I did an intro 
in the beginning of the film saying, hey, you need to support your local record shops and these bands. You know, this is a time during COVID and I put this video together, you know, and, and like I want to highlight these small record stores. I think that is probably the major reason that Amazon rejected that because, you know, out of the six films, I've only had one rejection. And then when you go in and there's no, you can't dispute it on Amazon. And if you upload it from a different account, they'll take down both your accounts. So they, they make it very clear, like there's no way around it. Once it's rejected, there's no, there's no disputing. You can't ask why they, I can only guess, you know, cause they do have a thing where it's like when you upload your content, they'll say there's an error. And if they give you an error message, they let you correct it and then re-upload it. But this said it was just like rejected. And I can only guess that the reason was is that instead of sending people to a website, I said, like, you know, keep in mind that these record stores and these bands are struggling and, you know, they could use your support. Well, is that frustrating, especially when any corporation that has all the power there and they never tell you what you can do to fix it? Well, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, I've worked with different distributors and they all have like, you know, different outlets that, you know, streaming services they work with. And, you know, like the last film, Man in Camo, got 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's like a sellable thing and it was on you know vod and comcast and all of these things and you know as far as i know i mean in these things also sometimes it takes years before something like hulu and amazon will pick something up but realistically it's like when you do the research on something especially like netflix it's all metadata and when you watch their site you can see that they're more about creating original content than purchasing other people's content. And Netflix, when they purchase something, it's only like a two-year contract. And when they create something, it's like for life, it's forever on Netflix. So, and you can even see, when you're looking through Netflix, the majority of things that they're highlighting to you and putting on the top bar are their own content. You have to really dig to find these independent films that are not their original, you know, intellectual property, IP, as everyone says. So, you know, it's like, or, or, or PO, no, whatever, intellectual property. What am I, getting that right? That's IP. right, yeah. Yeah. So, it's like, Netflix originally was this really great thing where it's like you felt like you were in a video store and you could see all this crazy, like, content, just like you would at your local, like, Kim's Video. And then they used metadata to weed it out, and it's becoming more and more like regular sitcom TV, which to me it's like sitcom TV has already had a thing called the ratings, so they already know what, you know, the same info you're going to get from metadata is going to make the same thing why Netflix will slowly gravitate to being exactly modeled after like the major networks. This is and which is turns people like me off. But luckily there's things like, you know, Amazon Prime, but also YouTube video that has like, like you can find my films on YouTube movie thing. It's like, there's like a movie section of YouTube that comes with ads. So I get a lot of emails from people who discover my film there. So 
it's almost like those two are becoming like the video store, you mm-hmm. know, supplement. Like mm-hmm. you can go down like a deep rabbit hole in those two sort of venues. And so you can find that. So hopefully, you know, something like Amazon or YouTube won't, again, follow the Netflix model and become something that's like really, you know, generic in their offerings. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about the YouTube because they had a program a while back and discontinued it. That was a little more like Amazon Prime where you could monetize, you know, with rentals. What's the one with ads now? That sounds like, are they competing with like Hulu yeah, so or like, those types? Well, like this is something that like, uh, I don't upload my films to any of that. Like the distributor, like, uh, the distributors I work with, they do it. So okay. when you're uploading your film or you're giving your distributor their elements, they tell you like where you want ad breaks and how many ad breaks and chapters to do. So they somehow upload it and do that. And I know it's under a thing called like YouTube movies or something. So it's like, if you want to watch the movie, you could pay the rental fee and get no ads or you pay or you pay nothing, but you have to watch the in ads. And so I get a lot of people, I guess, who are watching it with ads like especially self-medicated, I get a lot of emails from around the world. Um, you know, one every one every couple of weeks, uh, I'll get an email from somebody who's discovered that film, and I looked it up, and it said like seventeen thousand views. That's just from the YouTube one of that movie. So, you know, nice. it's a good outlet. Mm-hmm. Do you use a service like Film Hub? You know, or I guess what they call the aggregators or. No, I'm anti-aggregator. I mean, I have two of my films, The Dolls of Lisbon and Self-Medicated, were distributed originally by The Orchard. They became 1091. And The Orchard is like a, um, was like, you know, they were doing like theatrical and all of that. Like I had to submit the films to their acquisition department. So again, it's like they would say like whether it's fits their distributing model. So yeah, they have two of my films, but they were sold at 1091 Media. And to be honest, they're the only distributor that still pays me. Like anything boys can do and the dolls, I mean, they, um, this is Berlin. I had those distributed by EGG Entertainment, like Egg Entertainment. Um, which was a DVD distributor, and rarely did I ever get money from them. So it's amazing that I actually make, still get a little bit of money from those two films from 1091. And then the current one is um, Man and Camos, distributed by um, Freestyle Digital Media, and they put it on like a ton of different platforms, and it hasn't um, been that long. So I'm hoping that I get money from that, but I, I can't <laughs> tell you yet because I don't think it's been enough time yet. They, well, the big reveal to people, you know, they see your work on Amazon or Netflix and out there and think, oh, rolling in the dough. A lot of people don't realize, you know, most of these are labors of love where even if you do make some money through this, you're not you know, nearly paying back what you oh, yeah, spent no, to make any, these. Like, oh, I lose money hand over fist. 
So like, I'll give an example. And most people won't talk about this thing. It's like, I've had filmmakers, big filmmakers who've made zero and you would see their films on Netflix, HBO, in Alamo draft house, no money at all. And so for me, it's like, you know, like when self-medicated first came out, distributor takes it, you know, they take 50%. And then you got to imagine that Amazon is taking a percent. So your 50% is cut down by whatever 50% Amazon is taken. And, you know, and a distributor also, it's like whatever work they put into it is built back out of your profit. So, but still self-medicated had like a couple of thousand from the first year. And then it, it dwindles down. And then at some point it was like, you know, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, you know, every quarter. And then just recently it's like a hundred bucks, you know, a hundred bucks. So it's like, it's almost like it's made this weird dip and now it's slowly coming back. And that might be because of the pandemic, but it also might be because I have films like the more films you have out, like man in camo or whatever, the more films you have out, the more people you know, who see it, the more it suggests films similar to your film to other films mm-hmm. you made. So like or the orchard said very, very, very early on to all of its, you know, the people they distribute films like, Hey, keep making films, keep uploading them. The more you, you more films you put, the more people will watch your other content. And right. it's like a metadata thing. So, I think now because self-medicated is being viewed more, that's probably because also Dalza Lisbon was out in 2012 and three years later was self-medicated. So it's like the more content you put out, the more people mm-hmm. start seeing it. But the, the end result is, is like quarterly, if I get a hundred bucks, it's, it's still no way is it going to pay back for the amount of effort and money that I ever put into it. But that's not the, you know, you're doing these things because you love making film and doing those films also does help with my day job. And it, you know, it shows people that I can do the video editing and gets me work through that. So a lot of the actual cover the bills jobs has come from people seeing these films, you know, streaming or online or wherever else. So it does make an economic impact, but not from the film directly. Like right, right now, if you go to the films I just uploaded on my dashboard for Prime Video Direct, you know, and these films I've only uploaded a little bit. It says rent fifty cents. I've made fifty cents. <laughs> well, another videos. thing that helps them stand out is when people leave reviews. The more reviews you get, don't they go higher up in the search engine? Yeah, so the more people, it's like the metadata is vitally important. It's like when filmmakers at festivals say, you know, these films live and die with word of mouth. And metadata is the same thing. So if you're on YouTube and you give it a like or a comment, that helps more people, you know, the, the, the algorithms will point more people to that film. And especially on Amazon, if anybody out there is listening and you see my film, please please review the film on Amazon Prime. It is so important. It'll give, you know, not only will it up the metadata for the film and the algorithms will share it with more people, the films you've priorly watched 
will say underneath it, like viewers who watch this also like this film, which then means my film will then also show up on other people's, you know, watch lists and, and films similar to this film. So, you know, it's like, I can see it when I upload a film, I can see it's got like, you know, how it slowly over time becomes more viewable. Like, so if you go to the great record hunt, the pilot episode, and on Amazon, and you looked below it, you would see there's tons of like record related movies because a lot of the people who are watching that obviously are into records, you know. But then also, Man in Camo shows up under there, so more people might go see that. The, the one I'm having the biggest trouble with right now is a filmmaker's guide to festivals because it's only got three reviews and not that many people have actually seen it. But I'm hoping that's something that again that will populate, but everything else, it's like. People are now beginning to watch it. It's, it's interesting when you punch into the numbers, and I, I feel like I'm sorry to say this to the viewers because it's probably very boring to listen to, but it's like if I go to Prime Video Direct and I go to my dashboard and I look at 12 weeks out, which my films haven't been... These films I've uploaded have not even been out 12 weeks yet. I can look and say I have 5,098 minutes watched. That's a lot of people watching a lot of films over a lot of time, both the UK and the United States. So ultimately I made these films because I wanted people to watch them and people are watching them. Mm -hmm. I hope you well, are watching too. Everybody after they listen to this podcast, go to Amazon and watch all of Ethan's movies on Amazon prime. That's all yeah, there is to or it. YouTube or anywhere else. Because I, I know a lot of people who hate, hate <laughs> it, you know, or iTunes, Apple TV, whatever weird perversion you're into. Well, as we move into our, our final stretch here, which uh, is the exciting part, because I think I, I see a theme to your work. And this is what I want to talk about. It's kind of like your subtitle for self-medicated, a film about art. And especially in your documentaries, it seems like you've really dedicated yourself to document your art and other people's art and the artistic process, which is so fascinating. And I just want to talk about that a little more in depth about, you know, what motivates you to do that. And, and if you think that is kind of your niche. Yeah, I mean, I say like, you know, the books I write are actually like, you know, kind of like a memoir story, you know, novel. It's like they're story based and self med. Sorry, uh, the soft hustle is a story. It's a narrative. And I write scripts, too. But yeah, personally, it's like if I'm I like documenting my, my whole kind of arc and like what I see is like the overall thing and what I do creatively is that I like to document my experience. So whether I'm writing a book or making a film, even if it's a narrative, I'm, I'm ultimately telling the stories and things I've learned and overheard. And so I think it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm passionate personally about making art and creating. And I built a community around that. And I'm fascinated by how other artists do it. So, you know, I spend a lot of time watching documentaries about other artists and 
the thing that always kills me, it's like this same sort of thing. It's usually like white men talking about older white men and their stories like humble beginnings. And then they become extremely successful or have a hard time and die and nobody cares. And then they become successful. And that's not the, the truth for most creative types. It's like somebody who grinds it out every day is doing it the best they can and are probably going to die undiscovered and unloved and unheard. And those are kind of the stories that I'm really fascinated by because I feel like that's the story most creative people understand and relate to. So I'm going to pick artists that I think are amazing and also artists that I think are amazing and that are going to grow into something even better. And I document them. And I don't want to just show their artwork. I want to show the personalities of the people behind it and how they're connected. So it's like if you watch, especially the Dolls of Lisbon, uh, This is Berlin, Not New York, and Self-Medicated. Those three movies have the same groups of people from the antagonist art movement. I'm a part of it. A lot of like Arturo Vega and a lot of Ted Reader and James Rubio and all of these kind of like darlings of the downtown art scene. And you watch them over years and years and years traveling the world and doing these amazing, crazy art actions, but really having no major success. And I think that I personally relate to that. And I know I'm not going to make money for my film. So I'm going to tell the stories that I am obsessed with. Well, I want to touch upon each of those uh, documentaries leading up to, I think, finally, Man in Camo, your opus, which you've, I don't know which re-edit we're on yet. Hopefully now that it's, it's on done, Amazon. The, the distributor has it, so I don't I don't. So it's locked it into a final yeah. edit, finally. Good, good. But just to start, because it's fresh in my mind, Anything Boys Can Do, which I love that kind of documentary. It's got not only interviews but you got really great live footage and i i can only think for the bands and i was having a talk with somebody about this the other day so many bands have no footage of themselves playing live and what you've created for these bands is just some really good live concert footage yeah um when i watch that film it's like most of those bands are no longer together a lot of the locations like the gas station and, you know, brownies and these venues in the East Village and downtown New York, most of them no longer exist. You know, they're talking about things that, you know, sexism within the music scene that is absolutely current today. Um, you are very ahead of your time with this documentary. Well, the documentary is based off of a, a friend of mine that I grew up with this woman, Catherine Lyons, and she did a thesis on sexism within the music industry. And I took her thesis and basically turned that into a film. And, you know, it's like doing that film is kind of the first documentary I did, the first feature that played in, you know, 50 festivals around the world. That was my first sort of success. It was written about Time magazine and uh, Time Out did a big interview with me. It was, you know, pretty big for me personally as a filmmaker. And it really kind of highlighted this 
not only it's like, can I make a film that I want to watch that can benefit me personally, that can also benefit the artists that I'm featuring. And that sort of like led me, you know, to keep documenting the creative circles that I came into. And I guess after that, it's like, I started, you know, was doing the fanzine in that time period. And that sort of turned into the antagonist art movement, which was a collective of artists in the East Village coming together to create venues and experiment creatively. And so I decided, like, from the very beginning, I would document that. So if you watch the film, like, um, this is Berlin, not New York, that's kind of the first overseas version of it. But what's not on Amazon, and you can only find it on Vimeo, are two other features about the antagonist movement. Uh, Mark and the Ninja and Touching a Van Gogh, which were the very earliest sort of documenting the bands and the artists and the writer's night. Like We would take venues in bars and coffee shops and even out on the street and convert them into venues for artists, musicians, performance artists all over the city. And I documented that from the beginning. And yeah, so then I guess if you're saying like chronologically, like the one that more people would see was the This is Berlin, Not New York, which then was released on DVD and, you know, was distributed and all of that. It was in a bunch of the video stores. And that's the antagonist movement basically goes to Berlin, meets a bunch of local artists in Berlin, does art, street art all over Berlin, breaks into a building, pours paint out the windows of a building, and builds a relationship with these German artists in a collaborative effort there. And then a few years later, we got the, the option to go to Portugal, Lisbon, where I handcrafted over a hundred dolls and I made these dolls like canvases. So they were basically canvas material that you would, you know, make a painting on and took t-shirts and wire and made them into physical dolls and made it stretch the canvas over and sewed it up. My hands were bloody and it was nuts. I made a hundred of these things and I sent it to artists all over the world, including Germany. And then we showed in this old palace, it was called Pop-Up Lisboa which for two months we did this display of all the dolls that we made from around the world, you know, sending dolls to Ecuador and then to Mexico and to Germany and to France. And then in Lisbon, all over Lisbon, I mean, all over Portugal, and then displaying them with local artists and our international artists that we met in, in Germany, doing that show in there. And, uh, you know, also again, doing street art, like, stencils and wheat pacing all over Lisbon. Then after that, a few years later, like I think four years later, it was like in 2013, we did a self-medicated, a film about art where artists from Ecuador that I had sent the dolls to, artists from Portugal and Germany, but mostly like Germany and Ecuador, we go to Ecuador and we did street art and big murals and stencil art on the streets and then did shows in galleries and performance art and, you know, work with Ecuadorian artists in tandem. So 
that film, you see a big chunk of that in Ecuador, but there's also parts of it in Mexico and in New York City. So it's kind of like the South American um, invasion from the antagonist movement with primarily American, German, and Ecuadorian artists working in Quito and in Bato, going up into the mountains even and doing artwork there. And then after doing all these films, every time I do these films, I have a process where I show a rough cut to other filmmakers. They give me editing notes. And the kind of the big consistent message from doing all of these films was always like, you know, you're kind of like the voice of the antagonist movement. You should be a larger part of these films. You know, and I was like, I can't because I'm part of a collective and I don't want my voice to overshadow the other artists in this group. Their voices are just as important as me. So finally, I decided, well, I will separate this out, make a film called Man in Camo. And that film will just focus on my ego and my own artwork. And it's called Man in Camo because I wear this camouflage suit for all of my art interventions, whether it's a performance art or doing, you know, showing my art at a gallery. If it's my thing, I'm going to put this camouflage suit, which is like a tie and a jacket and pants, wear a hot pink shirt underneath, and I become a part of the art event. So Man in Camo is basically that over the years of doing these things where I wore the suit in Germany or Lisbon or wherever, people are always like, you know, hey, uh, who's that man in camo? So I made it man in camo is the title of the movie. Well, Did let's enter your question proficiently like a machine. That's very good. And and I like the the thread of you going into other people's communities. You know, one thing about I always wondered, um, well, ever since yesterday when I watched uh, anything boys can do is this was a movie about women who felt, you know, marginalized, marginalized in the male, you know, music world. How did you, as this white male, gain the trust uh, of these women in these bands to be so open about their story? Well, luckily, I've been doing the fanzine since 88. So I was embedded in the music community already. And I also had like a co-director, Noreen Henson who would come with me and, and do the interviews and all of that stuff. But I never even like, so like when you watch the film, there's a band called tribe eight and tribe eight is like a, a hardcore, like, I mean, this is, they refer, reference themselves as like a dyke punk band, but it's like, you know, it's a basically a lesbian themed punk rock music band from the Bay area. And I heard these stories of like, Oh, they're, you know, they like anti-man and all this stuff. But, when I met them, they were like the nicest group. And I really like their music is amazing. They're as good as any other punk rock band out there. They were just really wonderful individuals. And when I interviewed them, no problem at all. They were like the, you know, I'm not going to sit there and try to like divert their message. And I think they got that. And I feel like it's in there in the film. Their, their points politically are expressed in the film. At least I believe. So, you know, I, I think at the time period, nobody really gave me a problem about being a man making a film on this subject. I know today, if I did that, it would be you know virtually impossible. Like, there's no way, you know, they'd be like, no way, you, you know, like you have a male a skewed point of view. And that's a fair assessment. But at the time, I was 27 or something, and I just wanted to do it. And 
no one seemed to really give me a hard time about it. And I think that's expressed in what, you know, is the outcome of the film. Mm-hmm. And, and some of that is you either have it or you don't. Like when you're out there in a grassroots way, it seems like you automatically have that authenticity because people see you working for the underground arts. They see you actually, you know, doing something yourself. You're not just, you know, strolling in like a Hollywood executive saying, hey, I want to latch on to, you know, the latest fad. You're knee deep into this full time. Yeah, also, but I mean, I'm, I'm generally telling the stories that none of those people are interested in. You know, like nobody has ever come to this group and tried to document them, you know. So, like, for me coming in there, it was like, you know, probably a first time experience for both the subject and me. That's what I find most of the time. Some, so some of the things I do currently, I have to be a little more coaxing and get people comfortable with. But my mm-hmm. reputation is pretty spot on when it comes to like supporting artists at this point. How important was that documentary to those bands? Like when it was done, did you get to go to screenings where they were at? What was their feedback to you about telling their story? See, that's the thing. Like never in any of these films do I ever get much of that. You know, like I see Kembra, who's the singer for the Voluptuous War of Karen Black, and I give her DVDs as many as she wants or any of the bands, because I still have DVDs. Um, you know, like, they're like, oh, yeah, you did that film. And like, oh, that was so wonderful. And that's about it. But it's more that like somebody who watches, like, especially self-medicated, that's the one that's crazy. I get people from all over the world saying, like, there's something about that particular film that speaks to isolated artists, you know, wherever they are. And they always reach out to me and, you know, want to get involved, you know. Unfortunately, the antagonist movement is over, and I have to keep telling them that, but I'm like, you know, hey, start your own version of the antagonist movement. These films are not like a thing like you don't need, especially like this series of antagonist films like the This is Berlin or The Dolls of Lisbon or Self-Medicated. You don't need these groups of people to advocate for you. We're showing you how we did it however well or poorly we did it and you can replicate it like that's kind of the point replicate what we do like if you read barstool prophets it's not like saying you need me to put out your zine this is how i did a zine and dispersed it through the neighborhood and met all these crazy weird people well the great record hunt i see it as a transitional piece for you it's still, you know, your passion for music, you know, going, traveling, you have a, a great travel component, but also, you know, embracing analog culture, but it also looks really good. Not that your old stuff didn't look good, but, you know, more modern cameras, it just now approaches what you would see on regular cable TV. I mean, I thought it looked great. So I'm wondering, you know, does that make you a little nervous that, oh my God, you know, this could be a show on, you know, some big cable channel. Not nervous at all. That film won a um, web, no, not a webby. What was it? A Tully. A Tully award is a, it's like a broadcaster's award. So like only people who know about it are like major broadcasters. Like a, a Tully is like this thing where all the channels 
apply to it. And then you show to commercial interest, people who are like interested in buying commercial time, hey, this thing won a Tully, a Tully award. And we were competing against like HBO Latino and MTV and like Discovery and we won a bronze. And this is from a show that had no major backing, you know, totally self-funded, hasn't aired anywhere. And we won this major award. And then it also played in uh, Dances with Film in L.A., which is like a big deal, too. That's like the, the biggest L.A. film festival. And, um, you know, we met some like uh, people who were like managing people and they couldn't get anybody interested to actually buy it. Like it's sort of like the nature of that show is that we want to make a travel show for the average Joe, somebody who can actually get in the car, drive to another city and afford to buy a record as opposed to what is offered, which is go to this expensive vacation home, go to this expensive house, go on this expensive, everything is expensive in these travel shows. And what we're saying is like, you can afford a record and you know what? You can also support a local economy. You can support a local music scene, a local record shop. So I'm not going to a record store to find the largest studio produced major record labels of Lady Gaga and stuff like that that I could buy anywhere. I want to find local bands that probably never get outside of that city. And this is something that I've always done when I travel. I have a limited time. I have a kid. I go to a record shop. I have like, you know, 30 minutes max. I walk up to the clerk. Hey, can you suggest five of the best local bands you got? I'm going to listen to it on their turntable. I'm going to select three. I'm going to review it in the zine. I'm going to talk about the city, the music, the record store. And I just turned that into a show. You know, so it's like what I want to do is, you know, perpetuate the same thing I do in the in the art circles is like highlight creatives. This one, I think, is something that would speak to most people who like music. But what I got from the people who were the bigger producers and the people who actually, you know, the vendors who put out shows for discovering things like that, as they go like, well, we don't see a big market in music. And I'm like, are you like, everybody loves music. And then they're like, you know, if we did this show, we would want to replace you with an Instagram model and then have also like big celebrities and, and feature big, you know, record company releases. And I'm like, they already that already exists it's called everything else you know what i mean like mm -hmm. that's what i hate about everything else like i want to do a show where whether it's me or somebody else it's like that's a guy who actually does what he says he's doing he knows what he is doing he is down to earth and yet at the same time we can experience the learning that he is doing by going to a new city so yeah, unfortunately, I don't see that as um, ever making it into the big, the big time and being released by any channel. But I figured, hey, you know, this is a pandemic. I have the access to release it myself, and I did. You know that show with that guy with the spiky hair, and he travels the country, and he goes to all those diners and tries the food? Yes, he used to uh, come in the bar I worked at. I was not a big fan of him in person or 
his shows oh, no. <laughs> at all. Well, well, if he can get something going like that, you know, why not yours? I mean, because the travelogue format is cool, and you've found a new way to do it that I haven't seen before. You, you know, I'm just so surprised that we accept the same old, same old, and someone like you tries to push that a little bit and be a little more original. And, and then it's just, do, do you think it's because all these cable companies want to originate all these things in-house? They don't want to get it from an outsider? I don't know, but I mean, all they, you know, like the, the, we had a whole package and a concept and like, you know, we did all of the heavy lifting for them. So we would have been affordable. We did all the work, you know, like, it's not like we would have probably even made a lot of money doing that. The thing that kills me is like, you watch a channel channel, like discovery and it's like Alaskan, everything, you know, or ice truck truck, uh, road ice road trucks or like tuna this mm-hmm. and then when you watch these shows I watched one which was like this grandfather living in Alaska talking about fish and I was like this is unbelievably boring and I could care less just because he's from Alaska you know and there's show after show of this of like garbage that's just like so not thought out and has no meaning and is just worthless and it's not you know like I want to do something that in its, its beginnings, is built from a grassroots perspective. You do a show about, you know, Newport, Rhode Island, or Gorst, Washington, or, you know, wherever. You slowly do each episode about a different town and city. I'm pretty sure that people who, from that town, will watch that, and they'll watch the other episodes. And as you mm-hmm. keep traveling, you're slowly building this grassroots network that spreads the gamut of the country and not just the East and West coast. You know, the majority of these shows, you're only seeing two coasts. There's a whole lot of the country right Mm -hmm. in the middle that, you know, Mm -hmm. these networks talk about actually wanting to service, but continuously ignore. So, well, it's like antiques roadshow. Whenever they go to a new city, those people, boy, do they promote the heck out of that city. But it also makes me think of Anthony Bourdain when, you know, he would visit cities for, I can't remember which of his shows because he had several, but, you know, he was great at the travel log, but, you know, making it still a little bit quirky, personal, maybe he's a little closer to that, would you say? Yeah, I mean, like, I was a big fan of Anthony Bourdain's show, you know, and he was, he would hang out in the East Village and whatever, too. So, you know, it's like, there's a few shows where they actually have organic, like, um, you know, things like that, where it's, it's actually like you feel like you're going to places you can afford and you're being hosted by somebody who's an actual person as opposed to like a plastic, you know, vapid individual. So, you know, those shows exist, but for some reason they just didn't, the people who saw mine didn't like it. But, you know, again, it's like you never know. These things have a life of their own. So I'm just right. putting it out. I, whatever I do, I'll put out in the world, mm-hmm. you know, and see if something comes back. Maybe it will, maybe it well, won't. And it also seems like back in the day, MTV would have had a show like this. They would have been open to this. Yeah, you think. Back in the day, although the whole idea of an MTV now is just, it's almost like a dream that never existed. But let, let's uh, talk about uh, one of your... Uh, programs near and dear to my heart the filmmaker's guide to film festivals which is again 
you think, how come nobody thought of this before? Well, that like, you know, again, like when I toured first with Self-Medicated, a film about art, I shot like maybe two or three episodes with that film. And then when I did Man in Camo, I really made this decision that, especially with that film, if it got into a festival, no matter where it was, I would make my best efforts to go there. And I made it to basically every screening of that film, except for maybe two or th- two or three that were conflicting with other ones. And that even meant going to the Bangkok Underground Film Festival. Oh, wow. Thailand, which is in that show. So... You know, people think of festivals, they know of like, you know, Berlin, Toronto, Tribeca, Sundance, and maybe South by Southwest. But there's a ton of really amazing festivals, you know, relatively medium, somewhat larger in the region to very small micro festivals, including the Gorst Underground Film Festival. Which you put on the map. Well, I hope I did. That's (laughs) part of the point of doing this filmmaker guide is that I would shoot episodes with my iPhone and the GoPro, interview the people who put on the festivals, the filmmakers, you know, and the programmers. And it's this mixed bag of like, if you're submitting to a film festival, you read the about section, which is really just this text information that is really limited. It doesn't give you a boots on the ground perspective of the venues of the people and the location. And for me, as somebody who's dyslexic and sees things visually, I want to feel like I'm actually going there. So I profiled each of the, each of the festivals that I went to, and I would try to extrapolate information from the programmers, the coordinators and the filmmakers you know, because there's a lot of pitfalls when you're submitting to festivals. There's a lot of scams out there. There's a lot of things you need to avoid. And there's also a lot of like smaller festivals that you might skip over. So I kind of wanted to give the uh, like, you know, if you're looking at Hell's Half Mile or the Indie Film Fest or even Dances with Films, those are pretty large festivals regionally. You know, but if you go to like the Bangkok Underground Film Festival, it's like I'm screening upstairs in a cafe with like 10 people. So, you know, I think you need to see the gamut of that as a filmmaker. And this will really enhance the experience for filmmakers submitting to festivals. It also helps festivals to see how a lot of the other festivals do it and how they talk about their process. So a filmmaker's guide to film festivals is really just kind of like a learning tool. At the same time, again, like with all my projects, I like this concept of I'm promoting my films. I'm promoting my filmmaking. I'm promoting other filmmakers. I'm promoting the film festivals. And it's like a travel show again. So I'm promoting the locations that the festivals are happening in. Well, it's refreshing because at so many of these events, there is such a, you know, me, me, me kind of aspect, you know, which it's not a bad thing. I mean, filmmakers are there to promote themselves, but it's so refreshing to see someone 
who is out there to promote other people and, and who's really good at it. And it's just so refreshing. Do you get really good responses from people when they go, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm so happy that you're paying attention to my festival or wow, this is the first time someone's actually interviewed me as a filmmaker at a film festival. You know, it's like um, a lot of those videos, like I put on, I usually like post them on Facebook. We have a page called A Filmmaker's Guide to Film Festivals. And, you know, they get like, mostly like for, for Amazon, it's very few people have watched it on there yet. But on Facebook, thousands and thousands of people have watched each of these episodes. And, you know, like the filmmaker's, are also gracious it's you know they're taking their time to basically talk to somebody who's just walking up to them after a screening and saying hey can i do a quick interview with you they don't know me at all they have no clue who i am they have no clue what my film is or what i do they haven't seen any of the other other episodes and generally i've never really been turned down by it i've been haven't been turned down by anyone at any of these festivals the programmers and the festivals know exactly who i am you know, because they know my film. And I'm o I'm also using, you know, this thing of like, hey, I'd like to come to your festival. And here's a sample of uh, one of the filmmaker guides I did at a recent film festival. I'd like to do one on you guys. You know, even in Germany, I, I traveled for the Snowdance Film Festival, which is a beautiful festival, amazingly done in a small Bavarian town in uh, Hamburg, Germany. Like, amazing festival. I can't cannot talk highly enough about it um but like you know you're a it's like you go to a festival you go to your screening you go to other people you might meet a couple of filmmakers i am kind of this extrovert introvert so for me a great way to meet other filmmakers is like do you mind if i interview you and i want to hear about your film and tell me about your filmmaking or your film festival experience and then i'm learning i feel like that's a good Thing to share with the world so you know i've built friendships out of doing this thing that continue to this day you know like i know you from doing your film festival i interviewed you in that film i mean um in a filmmaker guide when man and camera played your festival you know so it's like again it's like trying to build a network of creatives across many different planes whether it's film festivals filmmakers individual artists musicians fanzine makers and to me they're all threaded together you know they all link and they all connect you know what's interesting about the indie and underground film festival circuit you would think it would be um just all this original stuff which it is but even within those worlds, there's a hierarchy. There's still a Hollywoodness to it where there's still the hot underground films of that season. You know what I mean? It's just so funny. We think we're going from Hollywood to this more open thing, but there can still be a rigidness to the underground film world as well. So I'm just curious when you go to underground and um, indie film festivals, besides the venue or the trappings, you know, just the content, you know, just the programming, how often do you just get struck by, wow, these are things I'm not seeing at every other festival. You know, this is some pretty risky, but really satisfying programming I'm seeing. 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like when I go to a film festival, I always want to, you know, I, I enjoy actually watching films. So other than spending the time interviewing everybody and trying to get as much cutaways and shots as I can, I also spend a lot of time in screenings, watching films and asking questions at the Q&A. I feel like the big thing now is that, you know, like, there is a need for underground and film festivals because, you know, things like Netflix and Hulu and all of the streaming services really don't take everything. And there's a great amount of stuff that if you want to see, you're going to have to go to the film festival and experience there. And secondly, it's like, this is an opportunity where you can watch a film, whether you like the film or you don't like the film, you can interact with that filmmaker. You can tell him what you don't like about it. You can tell him what you do like about it. You can learn about more of his work or her work. So the thing that kills me is doing film festivals dating back to the 90s is that, you know, it used to be when whatever festival I went to, there was packed out audiences. And now the festivals are also competing with all of the streaming services. So anybody knows like, well, I could go to the film festival or I could just wait till it's at least on Amazon prime because everything that's at the festival is going to be on Amazon at some point. And that's why there's a trend of, you know, combining more live music at film festivals to make it more of a concert event. Yeah. I mean like hell's half mile is like a really good example. It's hell's half mile film and music festival. And every night has a ton of bands. And so does like uh, Vitaline is in Tapeheads out of Detroit. They have a ton of really great music. You guys had live music at the Gorst Underground Film Festival. Yeah. You know, it's like, I think it's like, you got to try to do whatever you can to get seats and butts. And that's a hard thing to do. And, you know, like right now we're in the middle of the pandemic and not just festivals, theaters, everything, live performance is being killed off right now. But it is also like a great opportunity to reflect and figure out on the other end of this, how can we come back even stronger? So part of my reason for uploading a filmmaker's guide is I'm like, right now is a time that people need to know about these independent film festivals. Right now is a time that people need to know about record shops and artists that are doing wild stuff but specifically within film festivals i always think it's like if i was the programmer you know i would be trying to do whatever i could to break up that format into something that is unexpected so the audience comes sits and watches great films that part is not interrupted but what i would want is that those audience members go the next day and go like, holy shit, I got to tell you what this weird thing happened. You know what I mean? Like this bizarre thing, like water cooler thing. So like whatever I do an art event, I try to do a thing called the showstopper. And that's like, you know, whether it's a room full of like glowing paper mache guns, like hundreds of them and you're stuck in the middle of it or me wearing a camo suit. I want something that people are going to be able to photograph and post socially, but then also talk about when they're at the water cooler. So like if I was doing a a film festival, I would be having like weird things where like maybe stuff under their seat vibrates and like 
you know, like <laughs> that old school, like, uh, you know, what was it called? Like something Rama, like it was like the, the experience of the, what you saw on screen was actually affecting you in your chair. You were getting shocked or maybe mm-hmm. some audience member, like some performers that look like audience members get up and do something weird, you know? So like when you're watching man in camo, there's a section where you see me at a bookstore and I'm doing like a lecture on downtown arts, the antagonist movement and fanzines. And again, this is a thing where like, I didn't want to just do the same format. So I had five of my friends sitting in the audience, all of them pretending they were from fake newspapers and each of them having very pointed questions that would guide my story. And I'd be like you. And they'd be like, yeah, I'm from the Newtown Clowns. And this woman who was dressed as a clown in the audience would ask me questions related to clowns. And, you know, the audience kind of was like, at first, they're like, what is going on? But by the end of it, they got that this was not just a lecture, but kind of a performance art mixed into the lecture. And it works well in the film. But I think people who were in the audience were like, that's a weird thing. And I told the people, like, if I'm doing this again, the next time I'm going to have a puppet show. So while I'm lecturing, the puppets are going to be doing what I'm talking about as I'm talking about it. So it's a lecture and slash puppet show. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, well, when you arrive at a festival, I would try to do something weird. Sure. Well, like you were saying, you know, you come in your trademark camo suit and you're like an instant photo op. So, you know, if there's anything approaching a red carpet or just, you know, a bare wall people can take photos against, I would think anyone at the festival would just want to immediately come up to you and say, hey, I want my picture with the man in camo. And that's why I do it. And I met a lot of people at your festival that I'm still like writing with and stuff like that today and all of the festivals. So, yeah, I mean, it's like I spend a lot of time, whatever it is I'm doing trying to map out something that is a little different, a little skewed. Maybe somebody hasn't done something quite exactly like that. And to give the viewer or the user an experience that's unique. What's just so funny is when you come to Gorst in your camo suit, meaning it somewhat ironically and not realizing, no, you just fit in so well with the locals. I'm surprised someone didn't invite you to go, uh, elk hunting with them i would have probably tried to except they'd have been like you got to get up really early in the morning i'd have been like nope (laughs) yeah no it's like even so like as you said so like every time i screened man in camo i would view the audience and i would try to update the visuals of it so when you watch man in camo you see me in in um it's uh ray hammers tank with the flamethrower. Yes. There's a clip of that in Man and Camo. You've and incorporated Gorst, that now? So since you so since you Camo. showed that at Gorst, in a new edit, you actually include that clip at that screening. Yeah, so like if you watch Man and Camo, there's clips from the Gorst Underground Film Festival. There's clips oh of God. me riding in a tuk-tuk in Thailand for the, the Bangkok Underground. There's clips of me being scanned at the Indie Fest in Indianapolis. So, like, basically, most of the festivals, if there was something really visually impactful, I included mm-hmm. that in the story of Man and Camo. You know, I'm, I'm going to slum- tell Ray that he's going to be so excited to hear that. Well, there's Ray is actually interviewed in the um, 
Yeah, he's interviewed in the uh, Filmmaker's Guide, I believe. Yeah. Well, and for him, um, you know, when this all first came together and said, Hey, Ray, we need a film festival in Gorst. Can we use your metal warehouse to do it in? They go, sure, no problem. <laughs> so you got to have a friend like Ray who says, oh, why not? Sure. You know, you know, I've got, you know, a hundred tons of scrap metal everywhere. You know, it's going to take a lot of manpower just to carve out a little space to put chairs and a screen. But it's that whole kind of, you know, you're talking about something unique. And when someone like that, you know, it just spends his whole life, you know, as a metal artist supporting other artists, you know, thinks nothing of, yeah, let's do it. But also, and he just happens to have a flame-throwing steampunk mobile just sitting around for us to take photos against. Yeah, I got to say, like, for me, I mean, it's not just, I mean, Ray Hammer is a very unique and amazing artist. And I think there's a clip of his metal tank that he made, like this fully metal tank, which I loved when I was there because, like, clearly it's not just the steampunk tank, which you can mm -hmm. sit with inside and has a flamethrower and has a tower you can climb. And I'm describing this because you're listening to this. But he also made this miniature metal tank with real treads that moves and He's just a really, like, amazing artist. But also, it's like, you know, being there, it, there was a whole cast of characters that is really, you know, was a fun group to meet, you mm -hmm. know. And Doug I think, Johnson, you know, like, someone... stayed at his house, and Jay-Z Murdoch, who's an amazing creative type himself. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a whole crew you got there. Elton, well, well, and just know, yeah, the host, and... You know, just knowing you were going to be there, that also helps mobilize us. Like, oh, my God, we got this guy from New York, the man in camel coming here. You know, that excited us, too. I think we really fed off that. But I think it's like you need an event to catalyze all the local artists. Yeah, I mean, in, you know, like the kind of the structure of each of my projects, too, is like you want to go meet people within a local art community and hopefully maybe they can take something away from what you know i showed them from what i do so you guys are already doing it you guys already have a community and you're already working together but there's a lot of towns i go to like you know whether it's victoria texas or wherever you know that don't have that sort of community working together in tandem. And, you know, that's why I'll always travel as much as I can for the films that, and the festivals that accept my films. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to wrap up and talk a little more about Man in Camo and how it changed you. You know, you've, you've lived with that for a few years. You've, you know, had several edits of it. But just briefly, um, before we move on to that, I just want to ask you one question about the film festival circuit in general. And I know we both love films of all budgets and all types and all voices and points of view. But since you've seen so many uh, films at festivals the past few years, what just what what are the cliches? What are the things that if you could just tell filmmakers, look, 
you know, have a unique voice, but don't do these things. Well, for documentaries, you have to be very careful of like whatever is happening at the moment. Like whether it's like refugees from Syria or, you know, Kosovo or, you know, like uh, the Ukraine, you know, the Russians invading Ukraine. It's whatever is happening in the news, you're going like, I'm going to make a film about that. I'm going to make a documentary about that. And your documentary is probably going to be amazing. And fair enough. Keep in mind, everybody is now running in that same direction. So when I go to the festivals, it's like, like, okay, like I got that whatever is going on in, in you know, society at this point, now I have to watch like 20 films on that. So you have to be very careful that whatever you see in the media that you're very passionate about covering Either you have to do it in such a unique perspective, because if you do it in sort of the generic, like, here's the opening, I'm going to give you kind of a rundown, and then we're going to go heartfelt stories and wrap up at the end. There's like 20 other festival films hitting the festival at the exact same time as you. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. that's kind of this thing that always drives me nuts, because it's like, I'll go in and be like, ah, oh, like, that's the one, like, I just watched something similar at another festival, so I'm not going to really have the steam to go see that again. And on the narrative side, it's like um, predictability. If I can watch the trailer, or I can see the first five minutes of your film, and predict the whole narrative arc and the ending, you have failed me as the filmmaker. I don't want to waste my time knowing a story that I can already surmise so it's like, you know, whether it's like self, the uh, soft hustle, like I really try to make that like, okay, you're not going to really know what's going on. Like, just like hanging out in East Village Bar, you're going to feel like every moment something is uniquely organically happening because the story created was created organically. I overheard something, something happened, led to something else, created the story. So as a narrative, I would say that's like a very important thing to try to avoid structures that are easily deciphered by your viewers, because your viewers are probably pretty savvy, especially at festivals. And the same thing is going to happen for the acquisition department at distributors. You know, like I really try to make my films be very visually impactful. So even if it's a documentary on an artist, I'm not going to tell it to you in the same way hundred other art documentaries are. I'm going to make wild style animation. I'm going to show you characters you've never seen before. So, Well, the characters you've never seen before, I definitely think that can apply to both documentaries and narrative. Because to me, if you're watching something and the main character is generic, you, you, you just don't want to see the story. You know, there has to be a connection. And whether it is a documentary, you know, half the fun is when you find an interesting person to make a documentary about. You know, part of it is maybe in your pre-selection process, you kind of realize, well, maybe the subject isn't interesting enough to sustain an entire documentary. Correct. Agreed. <laughs> Which, fortunately for you, you're very interesting, and you did sustain your documentary 
man in camo. So I, I think people have, you know, who have been listening so far can read between the lines, but give me just an overview, you know, your um, your elevator pitch again. You know, what? how do you describe man in camo to people? Well, I say it's almost like when you have a near-death experience and your life flashes before my eyes. This is my life flashing in front of your eyes. So this is from footage that I have collected and archived from myself and films and skits that I've been making in the basement at the age of seven, all the way up through my teenage years, being a punk rocker, going into art school, moving to New York. So it's like photographs and footage and the very first fanzines that I made when I was seven years old and would copy at my dad's copy machine and hand out to my friends at school. It's like this larger kind of story where it's the development of a creative mind and all the different ways that it tries to grasp and obtain success. So in the film, you'll see like, oh, he does, he moves to New York and he does a zine and then he feels like he's not getting success. So he starts doing more movies and he starts an art movement and he writes books and he starts a nonprofit and, the, the reality is, is like I'm always pushing forward and thinking this will bring me a little more success. But the reality is, is that the whole of the body of everything I did is all successful because I enjoyed the process of doing it. And I would say also that the structure of the film is a little different in the, the narrative of my other films is that because I'm dyslexic, I tried to structure the film the way a dyslexic or my mind operates, which is very fast-paced, jumps around, does tell a story that you can follow from the beginning and end, but will be jumping back and forth through time. So, How did you approach the structure? I think one thing people don't realize is it's really hard to structure a documentary, especially when you have so much footage and so much to your personal story. Like it could be, you know, just one section of your life. You know, some documentaries, they've got the, oh, when he's a little baby and baby pictures, you know, some talk about, you know, one event in your life. How did you pinpoint, you know, what time periods of your life and, and just what parts of your life to choose? I mean, all movies narrative documentary they always have kind of the introduction so for my introduction i had to get to the main points quickly and that's i am dyslexic my dyslexia affects how i look at the world and perceive everything the dyslexia also meant i was picked on and ostracized by the kids my age and in the schools i went to i had to go to special schools for learning disabled kids and then the second bigger part of that is my parents getting divorced and then having the parents split and having to shuffle between the two houses. And then the third part is like getting into punk rock because I felt like that was the salvation for me. And all that happens pretty quickly within about seven minutes. And then it's kind of like punk rock leads. So it's like one thing leads to another. I'm dyslexic. My parents get divorced. I go into punk rock because I feel safe there and I find a community that I'm that embraces me and then that leads into getting into fanzines and to music and into art but then the violence of dc makes me want to get away from punk rock and gravitate more into the art world 
And then the art world leads me to starting an art movement and then going through that and the frustrations of an art movement and deciding that the art movement is better redesigned as a nonprofit where we work to disadvantaged youth around the world, teaching them art practices they can replicate. So basically the story is told from the beginning to end, but you'll see these videos of Super 8 and Betamax and VHS films interspersed throughout the film and weird wild style animation that highlights the stories, whether it's me animated through the book, a book, pages flipping by and you see me talking amongst the words of a book, talking about writing. So, you know, I tried to give the, I wanted the viewer to always have a unique experience that you walk away and going like, this is a style of an Ethan Minster film. It's very unique. I'll remember it. Maybe I'll go watch other films because I like his, the style of his films. That makes sense. Well, it is very stylish. And that's the one thing is being both the subject and the filmmaker, you can incorporate in your filmmaking techniques, you know, a technique that mirrors either your visual art or, you know, you know, all your other art. And I think the animation is an obvious part. You know, you have this punctuation of animation here and there. And whenever it comes up, sometimes it can just be for a few seconds. You know, like I said, it feels like more of a punctuation, but it makes a big impact. Um, so what what were you thinking when you were doing it of how many flourishes like that you would be adding throughout? Well, it's like every time I did animation in the other films like, you know, self-medicated or Dolls Lisbon or Berlin or whatever. People always said, oh, you need to add more animation, more animation, more animation. Everyone always wanted more. So in this one, I spent a lot of time. And believe me, it's like 10 seconds of animation would usually take me about a month. So it's a long, arduous process. And even through the film festival process, I was continuously adding more animation because it just takes so long. Um, but the other part of that is, is that you watch these documentaries about creative minds and artists, and they're always told in the same format. A shot from a camera, interview, cutaway, you know, it's the same formula. And I felt like I don't see many documentaries that actually express internally what that artist is feeling. So I I felt like if I was going to do this film on myself, it also gives me the leeway to make as much crazy animation as possible. So I shot everybody wearing my camo suit, even if it's not, you know, other people I'm interviewing, they're in my same camo suit. It's in a black background, which is supposed to represent the void because I'm constantly afraid of dying. So the big black void is all of the interviews are done in. And then in that black space, I can also interview behind people or do more. It gives me more leeway to animate. So because of this film, I was like, I'm going to experiment with a lot of different techniques that I wouldn't necessarily do with somebody else. And I'm, I'm working on two documentaries now. And the people who seen Man and Kim are like, add more of that. And I'm like, so it's almost become like this example of what, I can do for the other films that makes sense. But yeah, the, the end result is like, 
I love films like The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. Swindle. You know, it's a documentary kind of slash narrative of the Sex Pistols, and there's a lot of animation throughout that, and that really inspired me as a kid. So, you know, I think it's more entertaining to try to really inundate the viewer with images that they are going to think about later. And even in that animation in that film, I did a lot of things that were Easter eggs. And an Easter egg, you know, in a video game is like a hidden little thing. So in Man and Camo, there's micro animations of like, you know, something maybe in my eye that you see hearts, like when I'm talking about ex-lovers or something, or, or like somebody in a window, like waving inside of a little set. So I did things that you would have to watch the film over and over again to pick up these Easter eggs because I was hoping that, you know, maybe at some point this could have cult status to, you know, people going to this film to watch it over and over again and then being like, oh, there's a thing, you know, like in Mad Magazine, animations in the margins, the little mm -hmm. the cartoons. So I really, art designed the entire film to the 10th degree. And uh, people who might think that something is casually done in there, it's really thought out and specifically planned for that film. Well, it was very audacious to have the people you interviewed all wear the camo suit, but it was very effective. And I thought, wow, that's commitment yeah, to make everyone a suit. Well, no, they're all wearing the same suit. Oh, the same suit. Okay, they weren't like tailor-made for each person. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I keep in mind these these are self budgeted films. I'm the only one paying for it, so no. You know, but I wonder I what that does job, to them. I save up. I I pay for that next part. Well, I, I mean, they think... probably were hoping that I wash the suit more in between them. Like uh, your dry cleaning bills must have been through the roof. Sure. <laughs> but I wonder. It's they almost like this. If I dry clean it between them. <laughs> but this initiation, I bet when. The subject put the suit on, it put them in a certain frame of mind that affected the interview. Yeah, I mean, they're talking about me inside my own suit. So it's almost like, you know, you could almost imagine flipping in my head is morphing into another person talking to me because it's in the same suit. And even my daughter, you know, wears the same suit and she's swimming in it. So it's almost like a talking head sort of like, you know, thing. Well, a very charming part of the documentary is including your family and showing making art with your daughter. Yeah, I mean, like I say it in the film, but it's almost like I take parenting as an art project itself. I, I collaborate with my daughter. And I also wanted to show the frustrations of what it's like to live with somebody who is so focused on what they do creatively. So you see my wife really not happy and complaining about living with somebody who's basically constantly creating and painting and making paper mache projects in a small New York City apartment. People love the parts where she's bitching about me making art in there. She's, I think her and Blue are more popular. Her, my wife and my daughter are more popular than me in the actual movie that's about me, by me. Well, it's a nice contrast to see this guy from the punk rock world, an indie artist, you know, to see the domestic part of their life. 
Yeah, which again, which is also a thing, like I watch these art documentaries over and over again, and I really wish the camera would swing over to their significant other who would probably be like, yeah, this person's a total piece of shit garbage. He's annoying as hell to deal with. You know, because you know it's the truth. Like anybody who's doing that much work and obsessed with that is got to be a burden to live with. So I just wanted to try again to be a little more honest than a lot of these art documentaries because they always give this perspective of like how it's going to be, you know, you might go through some hardships, but how it's all like wonderful in the end. And it's like, even if you're doing something successful, it's there's hardships continuously with going on, whether it's for you or the people around you. Well, you talked about feedback and obviously since you've taken this to festivals and then done more edits after that, you've had the chance to incorporate people's feedback but i'm wondering at, at what point you know how in your mind do you filter that feedback and think well maybe i'll change that or no i don't want to when do you draw that line and say you know in spite of certain feedback this needs to stay i'm not going to change that i try to use logic um you know so for man and camo i early on did all the sent the links to editors and got specific comments for that. I sent it to artists who gave me kind of the artist perspective. And then the festivals, I started just watching, you know, like I get you, when you're watching your own film in front of an audience, you get super hyper sensitive to it. So anywhere I was like, Oh, I could up the visuals because it seems a little bit, you know, like it's a little lacking in interest here. So even if I'm talking about something that I need to express, I can up the visuals. So what I'm saying is, tolerable because the visuals are so amazing so that's usually my process but it's the same thing like i'm currently working or i just finished writing a script today actually i've been working on it for the past year and i did the same thing i sent it to people to read i take back their comments but some things you know you'd read and be like okay it might make sense but for the larger structure of the story doesn't make sense so I really try to only incorporate the comments that are logical and that further the story, always furthering the story. What's going to push the story forward? You know, and it's a thing like if I try to make one version of a thing, send it to somebody so they're getting fresh eyes and a new cut or a new version of the script. And things will ultimately sort of pop up again and again you'll hear the same sort of comments from two different people who are looking at something slightly different, then you know there's something you have to change. You know, once you had, you know, your first, you know, really finished version of it, you know, not the rough cuts, but your first, you know, what you thought was a finished version to send to film festivals. After that, how many more times did you edit this? I literally edited it made changes, at least slight changes between every screening that it ever screened all the way up to even after it finished its festival run, I made some changes before giving it to the distributor that the distributor hadn't even seen. They wouldn't even notice. But so what the distributor has now is the ultimate, ultimate done version. Cause once the distributor has it, then it's, it's done. Like there's a mm -hmm. thing, within the antagonist movement, within the manifesto that we had, which was that it's all about the process. It's not about the product. 
So while I was working on the film, I was loving the film. The moment I'm done with the film, it's sort of dead to me. So for me to be engaged to go watch the film at another screen, I had to make slight changes that I thought were a little bit better. So then I was excited to watch the film in front of an audience to see how those little bit of, you know, things that I made and made so precious would play on a big screen. So a lot of it was to keep myself engaged. And the funny thing is even when the film is done and I don't, I have no desire to work on it anymore. I'm going to continuously promote it till the time I'm, you know, till I kick over and die, you know, because unfortunately all of these small films need constant love. You have to always be, promoting so the creative part is dead to me the film is dead but the promotion of it will live on as long as i can get somebody to go watch it because that film was made to sort of spread the message of what i do creatively and the other films were made to spread the message of everybody else's creativity well while i've still got you here i just do want to briefly touch upon your two books so could you uh, give yeah, the titles say, and describe those? Yeah, I can do that very briefly. Uh, Rich Boy Cries for Mama is about growing up dyslexic in Washington, D.C. My parents were lawyers. My father worked for Richard Nixon. And then having a punk rock son who was running around, getting in trouble, trying not to get killed, and a bunch of my friends get murdered. This is true. Unsolved murders, and I kind of get fed up with the punk rock scene and I decide to pursue something else. So that leads into Barstool Profits, which then I land in New York City in the early 90s and goes up through all the way through 2015. And you follow the same group of friends in in DC and then it's me and a couple of those people in DC go to New York, and then it's a new group of friends, but a couple people from D.C., and see their experiences through the Lower East Side and East Village bar scene, and all the craziness that ensues. You know, if you think bartenders have the best stories, well, here's your chance to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And then even covers September 11th, where, and this is true, I had friends that were police department, fire department, and people who were in the buildings and people who were on the ground and how that not only did all those people lose their lives or a big chunk of them, but how the whole economy of downtown was affected by that for years afterwards. And then moving all the way up through like smoking bands and, you know, these things, but you're all kind of like, I like stories where it's like a band of characters and you're experiencing large changes of environmental changes through a city through history through the eyes of a group of friends and that's what both those books are and you can are, find them on amazon buy them on amazon. are these both there yeah are they both out and out memoirs yeah i mean they're mostly 100 percent true but i fictionalized and compressed characters and changed the timelines around a little bit okay so but it's mostly it's called like a a fictionalized memoir i guess they would say it but it's Mostly true. Or, or what's that word? Uh, n- narrative nonfiction. Would you call it that? Maybe. 
Yeah, I don't know. There's actual like French term for it, but I can't recall it right now. <laughs> well, and what I'm also curious of, so you were saying that, you know, that's an extension of all the work too. So out of everything we've talked about, you know, and again, I think you're, you're such a great chronicler, but, you know, it's also the method you chronicle something. It's not just he went to point A, B, and C, but it's the whole style of how he moved through life. So I'm just curious, you know, your life as a person, as an artist, you know, what's the style that you move through life in? I guess if you, I want the honesty of Charles Bukowski. I want the visual impact of Kenneth Anger's films. I want the, I guess the energy of like the discord DC music scene. And I want that all wrapped into like a handcrafted package that when you watch it, you know, like this isn't generated from an app. This isn't made by a computer or some large team. It's made by these hands that will, you know, get calloused and bloodied to give you a unique, fun experience that hopefully you'll remember more than the than your scroll on Instagram. Well, his name is Ethan Minsker. He's a renaissance man, a man in camo, and a man with a pretty darn high artistic output. That's probably what I admire the most. I think when we're done with this call, you're probably going to dive in and do paper mache until 3 a.m. or some, who knows, or maybe do another re-edit of your documentary. But I really appreciate uh, talking to you and just you sharing, you know, some of your world with me. Thank you for taking the time to hear me out. That's a unique opportunity for anybody who's doing something creative and we're all self-absorbed. So I really appreciate you and your audience taking the time to hear me out. And got a couple of final words of encouragement for uh, moving into 2021. You know, it could go either way. It could get better. It could get worse. I'm hopeful for the future. And regardless of uh, what happens next, just keep trying to chase your creative dreams. Because if anything has made it clear is that you never know what tomorrow might bring so you might as well live for today and embrace the people around you